buying experience, isn't it? I mean, imagine a, a, a new film version of uh, Pride and Prejudice, for instance, which they change the plot a bit. Miss Bennett and Mr. Darcy actually never do quite get together, they just fight too much. Wouldn't be very satisfying, would it? Or imagine Tom Hanks and uh, Meg Ryan in uh, Sleepless in Seattle deciding that actually the distance is just too big and they might as well give up communicating. Or um, imagine Shrek not ending up with uh, Fiona. I like Shrek. He's the one film star that I actually bear a passing resemblance to. (laughs) It actually seems that we are all fundamentally wired to long for long-term, permanent even, stable love. Stories about that, 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 that float our boat, that, that tweak us in a profound way. Yeah, there, of course there are plenty of more cynical stories. The world is full of cynics who don't believe in happily ever after stories. But, but, but those stories express that, not with the joy of delightful discovery, but with a sort of bitterness and wistfulness. and an air of disappointment. What our hearts really long for is permanent, stable, joyful love. And the Bible says something absolutely extraordinary about that. The Bible says that we long for that. Because that's what the universe was made for. That's what we were made for. Every love story that has ever been written is actually just a faint echo of the love story which actually runs from the first page of the Bible to the last, from the first moment in history to the moment when history comes to an end. Last week, if you were... Here, Richard was talking about God's love for his uh, people. The Apostle Paul prays in Ephesians chapter 3 that, that, that um, Christians will be able to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of, of God. And, and actually that got me thinking. In reality, for most of us, our relationship with, uh, uh, with God is actually a rather turbulent love story, at least as difficult as any Victorian novel or or modern film. There are misunderstandings, there are absences, the disappointments, tumults, uncertainties. What are we to make of passages which, which speak of the height and depth and breadth of the love of God? Well, actually, the Bible um, helps us with that. The Bible is actually quite frank that for now, our experience of God's love is, in some senses, frustrating, often turbulent, often fraught with misunderstanding. 
But that is not where the story is heading. The story is heading actually towards consummation. The Bible uses various images to try to fix that idea in our minds that, that if we are Christians here, we're beginning to experience something, but frankly, we, it's tantalizingly beyond our grasp often as well. For instance, it uses um, an agricultural image sometimes, the image of first fruits. In the Old Testament, there was, uh, um, uh, that they had the habit of offering a little bit of green barley, it was, uh, um, to celebrate that the harvest was on the way. So they'd take, when the barley would come into here, they'd take some of it and they would, they would uh, give thanks to God for it. And fortunately it's um, an image that probably doesn't work very well in Britain at the moment since the um, um, harvest is very uncertain and whether it will get properly harvested this year. But, uh, but, but, but in Israel... There was uh, a sense of inevitability that was beginning to grow. Once the ear is there, the full harvest will come in. Today, they would say, we only enjoy a little handful. One day, we will enjoy a vast sea of golden grain. That's what it's like with God. Today, a little handful of God's love. But that's the promise one day the full harvest. Or um, another image that the, uh, the New Testament uses is of, of uh, uh, God putting down a deposit on us. Today perhaps it is just a little bit, just the, 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 the 10% or whatever, but he is going to keep paying the repayments. No credit crunch is going to get in, in uh, God's way, there is going to be no repossession order. God has begun a process which will culminate in him fully, completely owning us. Or uh, a third picture that the New Testament uses is of a, a seal. A seal in Roman times was often on a ring of that uh, picture shows and it, and it, it stamped someone, so they used it to stamp their mark of possession on it. You could update it by saying, by, by, by saying God has uh, stamped his postcode on us, like on a bike, or God has written his postcode, the postcode of heaven, invisibly on us, like some of us do with our, with, with our possessions. So that wherever our possessions go. Someone will always be able to know this belongs to him. I belong to God. Yes, he's not taken full possession of us yet. But he's put his seal on us, his mark on us. And then another image, which is the image we are going to uh, look at today to try to um, help us to understand what it means to be a Christian in today's world is the image of engagement. In biblical times, an engagement was a binding commitment to a person 
It wasn't marriage. They were not fully united. They did not live together. But they were committed. According to the Bible, being a Christian is like being engaged to God. A binding commitment has been made but we're not yet at the wedding day. Mutual love has been declared but it's not yet been consummated. Four young people are going to get baptised today. And I want you to think of it as a formal engagement ceremony. They will commit to God. More important, we will celebrate that God has demonstrated his commitment to them in giving them the desire to serve him. And God has declared that one day they will be fully united to him. And today they begin that journey. Today, only a handful of grain, only a small down payment, only a little mark of ownership. But an unstoppable process has begun. God's love for his people will be consummated. That is the story of the Bible. That is what we yearn for. Did you notice that marriage imagery in Revelation 21? 21 verse 2. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be, them, be with them and be their God. The book of Revelation actually contains a whole lot of absolutely extraordinary images and here's one of them. A city, did you notice, with a wedding dress on. Slightly um, um, uh, extraordinary, isn't it? We're not, not expected to, to, to read this imagery as a sort of literal prediction about the future. That's, that's not quite how it works. But it's Neither is it a completely fictitious fairy tale. Think of the book of Revelation as a cartoon book. Look at this cartoon, for instance. You know what that means when you look at it. You recognise the man on the uh, horse and the poor little, uh, poor little stumbling pony with the GB on it and um, uh, tethered by the ropes. You know what that image is intended to convey. It conveys, through a picture, a truth, or at least as the cartoonist wants to present that truth, a meaning. The writer of Revelation um, wasn't an artist. He didn't draw pictures. He paints pictures with words. But they convey very real meaning. 
It's what I want you to, uh, 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 to realise. Just because these images are extraordinary, we shouldn't think that they are fantasy. Still less that they are, that they are sort of some disembodied, otherworldly future. Actually, the Bible says that the future that we are looking forward to is very solid, even very this-worldly. Almost uh, all people in the first century actually believed in um, life after death, but most of them thought of it in terms of some sort of um, a continued spiritual existence after death, like most people do today. And where the Christians were different was that they actually insisted that it was something much more solid. It was resurrection life. They had resurrection hope. They insisted actually that Jesus had been physically, bodily risen from the dead. He came out of a tomb. Many of them had seen him, touched him, walked with him, eaten meals with him. Luke actually records that the disciples, when they saw the risen Jesus, they thought what everybody would think. This is a ghost. This is some sort of spiritual continuation of his life. And Jesus said to them, look at my hands, at my feet. It's I myself. Touch me and see. A ghost doesn't have flesh and bones as you see I have. Everywhere the New Testament insists that our future is solid, physical, bodily. That's the great excitement of the New Testament. Our future eternal hope is much more solid than we think. In fact, the whole of creation, says the, says the New Testament, is going to be solidly, physically renewed. Yes, there are some mysteries about it. Yes, there will be ways in which it is different because presently the whole of creation is marred by sin. There is so much about this world which is, which is shaped by our sin. But don't think because it will be different that it will be any less physical. Notice here, for instance, that uh, the final image is not of God's people being whisked away from the earth to enjoy God finally in some other existence. It's actually of this city coming down to the earth to begin a new, solid, physical existence. This is what Christians have always, always proclaimed because it is what the Bible says. Look at then, with that in mind, what Revelation 21 describes using fantastic imagery but nevertheless clearly wanting to portray something real and solidly physical. It can all be summed up with this idea of a new community. That's why it's a city that comes down and is established on, uh, on this earth. It is, a, it is a great, renewed community. Look at some of the aspects of this uh, city. It is beautiful, we are told. Look at verse 11, for instance. 
It shone with the glory of God. Its brilliance was like that of a very precious jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. Look at verse 18. The wall was made of jasper and the city of pure gold, as pure as glass. The foundations of the city walls were decorated with every kind of precious stone. The first foundation was jasper, the second sapphire, the third chalcedony, and, uh, and so on. This is, this is dazzling. This is, this is the uh, Taj Mahal, the Sydney Opera House, the uh, um, Bird's Nest Stadium, the Eiffel Tower, and the Gherkin, all multiplied a thousand times and then made of gold and crystal. That's what he's trying to describe. But he's not talking about architecture. He's talking about people. Everything you have ever experienced in your relationships with other people will be there, but this time stripped of all limitations, unstained by sin, unrestricted by human uh, frailty and unlimited in time. The deepest intimacy you have known will be deepened and then extended to every relationship that is there. The most exhilarating experience you've ever enjoyed in a vast crowd will be normal every day. The most satisfying peace with other people will be universal. The most ecstatic delight will be the warp and woof of our relationships. This community that God will establish is going to be incredibly beautiful. And incredibly big as well. Look at verse uh, uh, 16 uh, of chapter 21. The city was laid out like a square as long as it was wide. He measured the city with the rod, found it to be 12,000 stadia in length, and as wide, and then he adds, and as high as it is long. It's a cube. Extraordinary. If ever you wanted um, to know that this is, this is to, to touch our imaginations rather than to, in a prosaic way, just describe what, what it is. Here, here, is, here is another um, example of that. Interestingly, it is a cube, which is, a, uh, which is of course, a perfect shape. Biblical writers um, uh, used cubes to describe perfection. But here it is a cube which is about the size of the known inhabited world of the first century. This is a cube that can hold all people. Many, many years before that, uh, um, Abraham had been promised that his descendants would be as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. And here at the end of the Bible is the city to hold them. There is room for everyone. Before we get too excited though, we, we must notice another a sobering aspect to Revelation 21. It does not actually include everyone. I wish I could say that it did, but uh, verse 8, for instance, makes it very plain. 
There's a long list of people who will not be part of that. And at first sight, actually that list, if you glance your eye down it, that, that list seems to um, support the commonly held view that um, um, a few really nasty people will be excluded, like uh, murderers and um, uh, paedophiles, but only them. It's what you might call the... Um, the Daily Mirror version of uh, Heaven and Hell, or the Sun. N- nice people who die in those in those newspapers get headlines like, "You're a star in heaven now," and and uh, paedophiles get, "May you rot in hell." That's the picture, isn't it? There. Verse eight doesn't quite fulfil that though. It includes in that list, do you see, the unbelieving. And uh, when we see the picture of the city as it is, we start to get a slightly uh, clearer picture. For instance, verse 12 there um, says that the gates had the names of the twelve tribes of Israel written on them. Verse 13 makes it plain that the foundations have the names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. This, this community that uh, Revelation 21 is describing, you see, is a community of people who follow the God of the Bible. The truths about God that began to be established in the Old Testament where the, the twelve tribes of Israel feature. The truths about God that, 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 that sort of burst into glorious technicolour when Jesus came and when the apostles started teaching about Jesus' life and death and resurrection. The truths of the Bible which, which John carefully says revolve around the Lamb. That's an image of uh, Jesus that Revelation uses and it uses that image for a very important reason. A Lamb was a sacrifice in the Old Testament. Jesus in the New Testament is the sacrifice for our sins. The Bible from beginning to end actually makes it clear that unless there is a payment for our sins, big or little, carefully thought through or thoughtlessly done, unless there is a payment, we cannot be part of this community. The glory of the New Testament is that the Lamb makes the payment. Jesus makes the payment. The Son of God makes the payment. God makes the payment in His Son, Jesus Christ. So that all we have to do now is ask for that payment to be my payment. Payment for my sins. Payment for my unbelief. You could translate that in verse 8, faithlessness. Those young people who will be baptised in uh, a little while, they have been taught and they have come to see 
But the Bible says there is nothing that they can offer to God to make themselves right with him. Except their open hands. To say, please God, give me forgiveness. Christ died for my sins. Please God, give me a new life. city has gates named after the twelve tribes of Israel, has foundations of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. It is, as uh, Revelation 22, we'll put it in, I know, so the end of um, 21, a place for only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. I wish I could say otherwise. I could wish I could say its bigness meant that absolutely everybody goes in. It would be lovely. But I do not have permission to say that. Because the Bible doesn't say that. Let's be very clear though. It is big. Today, there are uh, millions, tens of millions of uh, Christians in, uh, in, in, in China, in uh, uh, India, in Africa, in South America. In fact, to, to be honest, from a Christian point of view, Europe is a bit of a backwater at the, at the moment. But there are millions of Europeans as well. And one day there will be people from every tribe and nation worshipping God in that great and glorious future. And it is big enough for you if you choose it. It is beautiful. It is big. It is gloriously diverse as well. Look at verse 26 of chapter 21. The glory and honour of the nations will be brought into it. The nations are not going to abandon their distinctive cultures and uh, adopt one particular culture. Um, All of the diversity of God's people throughout the world and throughout history are going to be brought together in glorious diversity. It's going to be like... like, um, a much better version of the opening ceremony of the Olympics. Every nation represented there. It's, it's going to be um, um, culinary-wise like the, the Cowley Road multiplied a thousand times. Indian biryanis, Chinese chow mein, Thai green curries, Japanese sushi, Lebanese koftas, Italian pizzas, Moroccan tea, even G&D's ice cream and topped off by fish and chips. It's all going to be there. It really is, as far as we can see. A great feast coming from the glory of all the nations. Beautiful, big, diverse. Yeah, and it's going to incorporate within it Somehow, a, a new Garden of Eden. If, you, if you're like me, and the image of a city, in the end, tends to resolve into a picture of a concrete jungle. 
you will be relieved to see how the picture gets developed in chapter 22. This is, this is not just a concrete, even a golden city only. At its heart is a river. The angel showed me, verse 1 of 22, the river of the water of life as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. And central to this city is a tree. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing twelve crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. The Garden of Eden had a tree of life and rivers, and here is a river and a tree of life in this new city. It's not just going to be mankind's creation. It is going to be, in fact, a renewal of nature itself. The Bible borrows so many images as it hunts to try and explain the future from nature. The lying, lion lying down with the lamb, vineyards producing abundant wine, uh, fig trees laden with fruit. God's creation will, will be as much green as it is golden. But all of that will pale into insignificance compared with one central reality which is written all over these chapters. Its focus will be God. Verse 3. I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men and he will live with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God and he will wipe every tear from their eyes and there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed. The glory of God means they don't need a temple there that would limit him. They don't even need in this new creation a sun. It is eclipsed says verse 23, the city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light and the Lamb is its lamp. That's why the city is dressed as a bride. Because this engaged bride gets married here. She's finally united with God. All of those other things, the beauty and the size and the diversity and the, 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 the greenness of this new creation will all be enjoyed under the banner of God himself. Now united with his people. Now not distant. Now not having his presence mixed up with sin and confusion and frustration and disappointment and death. Now simply his people enjoying him forever. All of history is a love story. A story which goes through many twists and turns but which ends in marriage. And I just want to say three things as I've painted that picture to you. And there are a thousand other things that may be going through in your mind. But let, 
Let me just say three things before we sing and go up to the church. But they're three massively important things. First of all, to, to those for whom this, frankly, is rather foreign and peculiar. And you might even be wondering why people are getting so excited about it. We always have people like, like that. There are always people sitting here for whom it just hasn't clicked yet. What I want to say is, do you really want to just toss it away after this morning? Maybe you haven't seen the whole picture yet. Maybe you haven't seen anything, but I think you've seen something. Do you really want to say, well, okay, that was nice, but I'm going to forget that now for the rest of my life? Stories um, told of a British family. I've no idea whether this is true, but it gets repeated a lot. British family who emigrated to Australia to make their fortune. They laboured for years ranching in a dry and arid part of Australia before finally giving up in despair, selling the land and moving elsewhere. It was some years later that that land became the place where the uh, Australian gold rush was centred. The new owners were multimillionaires. And it seems to me that we live in a land where the, actually the golden promises of, from God's word are easily accessible, are just below the surface, and so many people actually never bother to dig, never bother to look, never realise what they're missing. Don't let that, that be you. Go away and think about it. Read some more of the Bible. Ask yourself, do I really want to ignore this for the rest of my life? And then, for those of us who are following Christ, especially if you are a a member of of the church here, yesterday on our day away, we had a great day away, um, and thanks to Emily organising it and uh, and many other people making uh, contributions, on our day away, Chris Kandaya was reminding us that actually since the new creation that we're heading for is solid and physical, since actually God intends to renew everything new, since the the glory and diversity of the nations is going to be brought into this new creation, actually, if you think about it, every part of life now has eternal significance. It's not that God is just interested in some sort of hidden spiritual dimension uh, to us because that's what will continue. The Bible insists that God is interested in the whole of us, the whole of our life, your life as you go to work, as you live amongst your friends, as you live amongst your family, as you, in private what you do, how you work, how you rest, how you ply, as Chris was putting it, everything is significant. 
Everything, in fact, that we do is meant for us as believers to be a little taste for the world to see of what that new creation will be like. Yes, marred by sin. Yes, incomplete at the moment. But a little taste. We say in our, in our vision statement that we are committed to displaying the glory of Jesus. Let's extend that. To displaying the glory of Jesus and his new creation. And we say as well that we do it through word, service and community. We want to speak about it. We want to serve God in every aspect of our life uh, as a way of displaying that. And we want to be a community because we need the support of one another. We need to model that. So that we are a little outpost, a faint echo of the final day. Isn't that a great thing to commit to this year? Yeah, it's hard work. Yeah, it's frustrating sometimes. But it's a great thing to commit to. And then finally to those scattered around here who are going to get baptised. Less than an hour now. This is your engagement day. This is the the day when the deal is sealed. And it may be difficult, it may be turbulent, there may be ups and downs, there may be times when, just with every love affair, things are not going so well. But it will lead to this day. You are heading for the new community of Revelation 21 and 22. Engagements in the Bible are always followed by weddings. Rejoice.